hello and uh, welcome to another episode of Pod of the Gaps, the podcast that tries to plug the gap uh, between the church and theology and the, cu- the culture and explore issues that are often overlooked or, uh, or in our view, handled badly. Uh, my name is uh, Andy Bannister, as it always is, and I'm joined by Aaron Edwards, uh, my uh, my partner in crime. Aaron, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. And just to confirm, my name always is Aaron Edwards as well. I mean, I know you have fluctuations sometimes. You feel different about your name, but, you know, just to say, Aaron Edwards well, is my name. Well, you say that of going, I do, uh, you know, my, my wife laughed and my first, I, I've, I write a lot of popular books and I've, I've written one like big academic book and the academic book we went for, not Andy Bannister, we went for Andrew G. Ooh, yeah. Bannister on the title because it we felt the you know the gravitas. Like, that, that has more more gravitas you know that's the middle true. initial the middle yes. initial that's um, what yeah that you got uh, i don't yeah I, I had that for my but obviously the academic books are so expensive they already have a kind of gravitas don't they but i had to put a p in the middle i had to be aaron p edwards because there's another aaron edwards who's in northern ireland and he writes history books about the troubles in Northern Ireland and military history and things like this. So some there's some religious crossover with some of his journal articles. So I occasionally get angry emails complaining about something he's written in a book. Um, and I kind of, I, I'm, sometimes I'm tempted just to play along, go, yes, well, yeah. I'm trying to try and defend this Aaron Edwards position. So oh. I thought, okay, I need to put a little P in there. I like that. So you're, I like the fact your initials spell ape. ape. But yes, we'll my, my dad reminded me of that when I was younger. I used to walk with uh, my my foot turning inwards. So you walk a bit like your initials. So I was like, right, okay, good motivation. And, uh, to... and you mentioned other authors. I, I I had an email the other day from somebody who's, who'd, who'd heard me speak at an event and then gone trying to find my books and said he got confused because when he first Googled me, there's a science fiction writer uh, with the same name as me. But thankfully, he figured out fairly quickly that unless I had a sideline in writing books about space battles and, you know, epic adventures in the galaxies this is probably not the right you could i mean uh, i think part of, part of the gaps listeners are now going to write in and say please can we have an andy bannister sci-fi we'd love to see what that kind of dystopian world would look like yes exactly talking this talking of dystopian worlds you were saying that you've just had the um you've just had the star <laughs> student uh football match yeah well at, uh, yeah you, and by the I way did... for american listeners when we say football we mean we mean, we mean what you guys call soccer, not, you know, American use your feet. Is, yeah, use your, your feet in football here, not your hands, not, which I know no, is strange no. to Americans. That it is, they, it is. They just but have a kicker, the, don't they? Yeah. So yeah. The, the big burning question, I guess, who, who won that? Was yeah, it the staff, well, it was not a dystopia. It was a utopia. We we trounced the students. It was yes. absolutely glorious. Um, and it was. I was surprised, really. They, they, were, they were some good players, but we had, we just had the nous, the organisation. So we won 8-3. Even though and I'll put it on social media at some point, there was a highlights reel. I, I say highlights in quote unquote. I'm pretty sure a student had something to do with the editing of the highlights. It didn't show a single one of the staff goals. It showed one of the student goals and various triumphant moments. So it gives the highlights. You just see us. You see me getting nutmegged, which is when someone puts the ball through someone's legs, and then a few other little moments of us doing something. And then suddenly, it just says the start. The, the the score at the end is eight three to the staff, which looked quite surprising in light of what yeah. you've just seen. But we were glad to actually lift the trophy again. We do have a trophy that gets engraved every year. So you know. Well, I hope that I hope you didn't score eight three by you know starting the match by saying let us pray, and as the students bowed their heads and closed their eyes, you kicked the first one in. Went, that's, that's true. Yeah, the, but the principal was the ref, so could you could argue that he could have had a bias. So he gave me a very unfair yellow card. I think really for the theatre uh, of it more than well, anything else. I, I, I certainly think fo- football matches beats what my week has been like because I we're, we're, we're moving house, so I've uh, I've discovered <laughs> again. I find this whether you move half a mile down the road or five miles down the road, um, moving two and a half, three thousand books is <laughs> yeah. uh, 
it's not joy. I, I love reading. Yeah. I love old hardback books, but not when it comes to to moving house. <laughs> I find myself asking why with regular regular occurrence. I'm sure your wife does the same. Do you need all well, of these books? Yeah, when we when we moved to the UK from Canada, I think our movers when they came in and sort of you know sussed, sussed the house out and figured out how much effort it would take to move. Their eyes grew wide as they walked into my study. And then afterwards, they they, they told me the fun fact because they have to weigh everything because it was coming across the, the ocean. Oh, my the, goodness. The, 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 the books from the study, he said, made up over half the actual gross weight of, uh, <laughs> of, of your lot of shipping from, from Canada. And I think my... Yeah. My wife has to just looked at me and raised her eyebrows and that kind of like, yes, I told you so. Yeah. Uh, I always get of... people who, whenever people help me move house, they always saying, have you ever considered ebooks, Aaron? It'd be a great idea. I could, I could say, have you ever considered book burning, Andy? That'd be, you know, you know, the cancel culture does enjoy a bit of book burning. So if you just embraced woke ideology, you could burn at least, you know, 2,000. Well, I was books. thinking that the, um, the, 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 the next book I write, you know, authors always leave, you know, so there's always pages blank at the front. Maybe for those who don't like our writings, that, that could be impregnated with a you know sort of barbecue lighting paper. So you know this book is pre-impregnated, so that if you wish to burn it, it will light more uh, easily. Um, but you always like to you always like to you know set me the challenge of finding a link, Aaron, between the, the, the I think, pre show. I think I can I see have it one. Now. I actually I have one. It. No, 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 no. It's not the one you think. It's okay. that last night as I was packing up books, I got through the New Testament section, I got through the historical Jesus section, and I just came to the ethics. Oh, yeah. I organize because there's a big debate, right? Do you organize your library by um by subject or by or by uh you, you by, organize it when you've got something else that you're supposed to be doing that you want to avoid? Well, That's what people do, isn't it? Quick random story. Let me just get back on through. When we what one of the things they do in North America when they sell houses, it's becoming known over here a bit more, but it's much more common in North America and in Canada. Um, is the uh the the, the estate agents get the house staged. So we moved out for a week. Uh, they set it up beautifully oh like goodness. a photo shoot for other bits of furniture. I mean, the photos of our house that went up online look like nothing <laughs> like the house. They made you want to buy your own to. house. But they think this, but, but they figured they couldn't move all the books out. So what they mm. did is they organised the books so they looked more photogenic and they organised them by colour and by height. So I came back in <laughs> afterwards to go, my library that was organised was now <laughs> organised, books were organised by by colour. That's amazing. Um, I've seen, so I know we're we're already off thread, but you know the back back in the day, back in the Bollywood days of Cliff College, like around you know a bit a bit beyond this time last year, last summer, you know you know when I had the people coming to my office saying they wanted to use it for filming, if I hadn't been there that day and said what are you doing here, um, they would have done the same. They would have moved all my books out of the office and then apparently put them back exactly as they are. And my books are not particularly well organised, as you know, when you see my office. They are organised thematically, but I just I somehow doubted that a Bollywood film set crew would know exactly all the nuances of where to put all of these books. And I, I, apparently they just take photos on an iPhone and put them all back as they're supposed to be. But I, I was dubious. You know, it's true. I'll tell you what I might have been tempted to have done if I was if I if I was you. This is very, very naughty. I'd have moved them all out myself because that's the easy part. And then said to the your superiors at Cliff College, oh, you're happy for you guys to, to use my my office because um because it makes money for the college but could you make sure when it goes back you maybe need to get a couple of students could you organize it as it was you know all groups yeah. theologically and thematically and, and, and get that perfect yeah that's true i should have done that anyway yeah. back to the ethics section yes that is a, a, a link to today because today we are we are going to talk about um well it is a massive ethical topic and one that isn't so much uh in the in the news a lot of the time but is right 
now, at least on this side mm. of the Atlantic, which is unusual. And that's the whole topic of abortion. Mm. Um, and of course, with what's happened in the States with, you know, Roe versus Wade, that, that, yeah. uh, that legal <clears throat> decision perhaps being revisited, you know, it's for the first time in a long time, Aaron, I don't know about you, that I've noticed that over here, where there's the you know mm. commentary on that, uh, for the first time, abortion is actually being talked about and discussed much more openly. In fact, I was reading an article in the Spectator magazine, political magazine, just the other day, actually saying how refreshing that is, wherever you stand on mm. the issue, that, you know, it is an ethical issue, but it's just not debated and talked about mm. over here. And now it mm. is being uh, talked about. I mean, so many ways into this this topic of places. Mm. Where, where do we begin thinking about this as, 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 as Christians? Because it, it, it does seem so dangerous mm. so toxic so divisive yeah. so is it complex i mean where what, what's the way into yeah to i mean it's interesting you open myself by saying that um it's you know it's rare that it's spoken about here and it probably but it's only being spoken about here as you say because it's something's happening in the us so again we show our evidence of britain as as a vassal state of uh of the empire the reversal of the I'll former tug my fall former tug my that's right um but that's exactly right we, we follow the slipstream and i and I, but I'm, I'm very glad of that and i think that that article we met you mentioned the spectator does refer um yeah to the fact that it's, it's a bit odd that we've sort of it's a done deal here we know no one really debates it and actually so i said that for me that's where i would want to start that's for me that's what i'm quite animated by what causes us to not speak about certain issues um and abortion is the most significant moral issue of our time but really obviously the case and, and i've i've come to an increasing conviction to need to speak publicly about it i think i started talking a bit more publicly about it about five years ago but i because i'm not particularly consistent or haven't been in, until so I've been a bit more consistent recently about speaking out on, on socio-political issues, but because I didn't have a clear, oh, how would I speak about this or this? How much do I say about poverty? How much do I say about this? Do I need to have a perfect balance in order to speak consistently? It'd sort of be here and there and occasionally mention it and then and then not and feel like, oh, I'm not doing it consistently. But I think those sort of things stop because we don't have a clear political theology as evangelicals. We, we sort of avoid the issues mm. that are going to cause more trouble. And, and you, I just don't think you can do that if you're on abortion. I, I think it's going to be, I think it will be overturned. As in, I think with, with the, the, tide, the, you know, the public tide will change. I, I do agree with the lobbying groups who really believe that something will change. And so the things that are happening in the US right now with the overturning of this 50-year-old um, law, um, which they're seeing as possibly un unconstitutional, um, that you that you have a kind of right to abortion legally, um, I think that the tide will change morally, and I think we'll probably come to look at abortion like we now look at slavery, and then then there'll be a question over well, why didn't you say anything about it, you or you with your platform or you in your pulpit, why why how could you not speak about this unbelievably heinous issue that we all know now is absolutely terrible, and I think it's because we get mired in, in caveats and, and and the sort of complications and we and the smoke. But again, that's exactly what happened with with slavery. If you if you read um, things like Harriet Beecher Stowe's um, you know Uncle Tom's Cabin or Frederick Douglass and things like the other writers of this time who, who speak about slavery, you get an insight into the kind of arguments that are made. Which when now we go, who's who's making these arguments? What they were Christians even making these kind of pro um, keep, keep racial based slavery as it was um, because they have some you know this very clever ways of saying, well, actually, you don't realize it's really complicated. Look what would happen if we gave up our slaves; they'd only go to someone else. 
Um, it's not really going to help them. We, we'll, we'll look after them better than they look after them, whatever. There's things like this, which now you just go, no, 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 you, you just can't make those arguments. We just need to get rid of this problem. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with abortion. And we, we cover it with, with smoke and mirrors and, and caveats. There are caveats yeah. and we can get to those. But I think for me, the big headline is, mm. oh, my goodness, we are killing babies. And 60 million have died in the US alone since Roe versus Wade in 1973. Yeah. Um, I think abortion in this country, 1967, the Abortion Act, um, and we've got 10 times, is it, the amount uh, of abortions per year following the year after that first happened. So now we have over 200,000 in the UK uh, a year. So you just think that's yeah. an epidemic. I mean, that's just awful. Well, it is in one sense. I remember coming across similar figures to you and then someone describing it as, you know, you could, well, you could, you could, you can just, you, you, you should describe, you know, abortion as the biggest single killer of, 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 of children under the age of, uh, you know, wherever you set the figure, it is the single biggest case and cause, cause of mortality. And then the other thing that really opened my eyes to it, my, my journey is similar to, to to yours in some way, so, uh, Aaron, you know, I sort of, you know, an issue I steer away from. I still do. I'm careful mm. about public, you know, politics and theology because of my passions as, as an evangelist. But also like mm. you, I'm a philosopher and theologian. And I, yeah, for a long time, I thought myself thinking, well, I'll let other people speak on this one. But then the more you begin thinking about it, and I'm in my eyes being first being open to it in a, in a history lecture, when I was an undergraduate <laughs> back in the early 2000s, when uh, one of our uh, church history lecturers just made the comment in passing, it was an aside, mm. and it was mm. one of those asides that I can't remember the lecture, I remember the aside, where he said, if you look at how life expectancy has increased since the Roman era, mm. he said, if you factor in abortion into the death statistics, he said, which is a fair thing to do, because when we, when we calculate Roman life expectancy, you know, kids, babies who are thrown onto rubbish heaps and exposed on hillsides, mm. we count against them. They get counted into the overall, overall mortality. We do this conjuring economic trick where we don't count in the, the millions that we, you know, heave off the planet mm. that way. Bring those in. And it turns out the life expectancy hasn't increased since the Roman era on average mm. in the West much by four, much than about four or five years. Mm. Um, mm. And I remember just mm. thinking, oh, my word, I never yeah. really thought about that and then of course historically what i find fascinating when you bring the historical lens onto the abortion question is you say going forward i think there will come a time i think it is coming we see the beginning of it mm. where we'll look back on on this window of history and say what on earth were they thinking yeah um we know we talked about that with transgender um i think certainly with abortion but flipping mm. back in the other way we love to cast aspersions on the past yeah. but actually the roman world where life was very cheap and where they had post-birth abortion, effectively, if you had infanticide, it was practiced. Mm. Um, you know, we would love to, we'd love to sit here and judge that and go, wasn't that mm. terrible? But we're doing exactly the same thing. It's simply that we have medical interventions they didn't have then. And I came across, um, it's quite, it's been quoted quite a lot, actually, but it just sort of brings out the starkness of it. Um, there's a letter uh, preserved from one, what, first century BC, written by a, a Roman citizen to his wife. So a Roman, mm. you know, sort of high-class uh, individual uh, man to his wife who's expecting a child. And listen to these words that he writes to his, his wife. He writes to her, he says, I'm still currently in Alexandria. I plague and pe plead with you, take care of a little child. And as soon as we receive our wages, I will send them, I will send them to you. So potentially this is a soldier on the front lines or whatever. But that is what he adds. In the meantime, if good, give, if good fortune to you, you give birth. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, kill it immediately. Yeah. And we would look at that and go, 
that's outrageous. I don't think I'd, it'd be very hard to find anybody today, not even, you know, somebody who's, you know, argued in favour potentially of infanticide like Peter Singer, uh, the atheist ethicist. I imagine even Peter Singer, who I've debated, would look at that and go, oh, gosh, hang on a moment, because it's coupled with gender selectivity. Mm. But the Romans here are exercising choice. Uh, they're, you know, it's a life that's not wanted. You can make the argument, well, this mm. child would grow up in a family where... You know, the husband in those days, the, the, the wage earner doesn't want the thing. It's going to be a terrible for the yeah. family. So the best thing to do is to kill it. Um, mm. Nobody would draw that conclusion. Mm. Um, but have we really advanced? Yeah. Much yeah, it's exactly. I'm not it, sure that we have. Mm. I, I, I totally agree. I think that it really does poke a massive hole in the in the progress myth, as if we needed any more. I mean, we already have, you know, many reasons to doubt the progress myth as, as to whether we're getting better as a society. There's so many angles on that we, we can talk about another time. But um, I, I think it, I, we had an experience when we were living in Scotland, a really weird way into this that really was shocking to me. And it showed where we're at really as a culture that we tried to get, for our, we had our first child in England. Our second child was in Scotland and we couldn't get a gender reveal scan and some of you might go, how how unethical of you? You shouldn't even get a gender reveal scan. But we like to do. We like to know uh, in advance and pray for the baby and think about naming the baby in advance. Um, and so, twenty weeks in, we we assume that it's just this is normal, par for the course to get your kind of uh, second ultrasound. And they say, oh no, you can't do that. You have to go private if you want to do that. You have to pay like a you know go to a private um, you know kind of medical care for it. So oh that's bizarre. Why why is that? And there was a case just a few years ago when we were there. Where mm. someone had the gender reveal, they got it slightly wrong. They always say, they always say, kind of, we think it's this. Um, and it turned out that they said it was going to be a boy and it turned out to be a girl. And then the family was from another culture. They said, um, yeah, if we, if we, you know, you, you got it wrong, we're going to sue you. We're going to sue the hospital um, because if we'd have had a girl, we would have had her aborted. And they won and they won, you know, tens of thousands of pounds. I forget how much they won in, in the settlement um or in the court case and i think that meant that all the hospitals in scotland they said right we're not doing this anymore because it's not worth our while it's just it's disgraceful that they won i mean you just i mean the the irony is that abortion is really seen as a feminist issue that's what the reason why why abortion is not spoken about here is because feminism has been so successful at making it a feminist an issue related to women so therefore a lot of the men who would want to speak out against it don't feel they're comfortable to but in the end you know as, as i think john piper pointed out and in a very famous um speech against um called no mr president you can look it up on youtube just a short little clip from a sermon when obama first got in um it was it's was, it was a great little piece really because he was saying i you know i i'm glad that you're i'm glad that you're in office but when i see your your policy on um on abortion it, it makes me weep because you are not supporting and protecting women you think it's you're, you're you've got the feminists on your side but you're killing you know, tens of millions of women, well, tens of millions of little women, little girls have been killed because of these laws. And you have the power to change that. And you're not doing, and you're not doing anything about it because you think you're helping women and you're not helping women. Women are going to be subject to all sorts of um, abuse in the womb. And we just don't think of those because, because we have found our caveat, our clever academic sounding caveat, that this isn't really a person. That life doesn't begin at conception, that actually, well, we have to make an arbitrary distinction. And no mm. one knows where to place that line. 
the, the pro-choice argument they don't they don't come along and go well we we know exactly when life is supposed to start is it 24 weeks because that in this country that's when you you're allowed to have yeah. a baby up until but clearly they don't think it's when a, when a person becomes a person so it, it, i just think it's ludicrous how i think you're right they get away with it yeah. i mean not least what's interesting you said 24 weeks there i mean there's there's, there's a couple of things that you know i think as i've reflected on this over the years also a part of shaping my my not not change of heart because i was never in favor but it was you know this issue that mm. i would talk more about now first yeah. it was my niece was uh was uh was born at 23 weeks so before the threshold uh mm. she was she was a preemie and uh mm. you know was on an incubator for a, for a while and uh you know it's touch and go for a long time because that's very mm. young but now mm. Is it you know is a is a beautiful fourteen year old fifteen year old mm. and uh, you know whenever I look at her I part of, part of me always thinks gosh that's interesting because you know your parents could have chosen to go now nah, change their mind yeah. and then I think the other thing that, that that calls out the slight contradiction here is you know Astrid and I uh, over the process of having two you know wonderfully healthy children we had several miscarriages mm. definitely definitely three mm. uh, one that required you know Astrid to go into hospital and have a procedure. Yeah. Uh, the other two were, were very, very early on. But, you know, we grieve the loss of those potential mm. children and mm. to go, and people do, when people have miscarriages, mm. they don't sit there and go, oh, well, it wasn't a life, was it? It was mm. only a bundle of cells. Never mind, mm. try again. You yeah. don't. If you've been yeah. through that, um, and theologically, I yeah. think in the new heavens and the new earth, I'm going to be the father of at least three other children mm. uh, because mm. I believe those those kids are with the Lord. Yeah. Um, but the moment you make that connection, then to mm. go me that drives the coach and horses through yeah. abortion. How is it? In fact, I remember years ago seeing uh, whether they would dare do it. Now there was a there was a BBC documentary about 10, 15 years ago from memory, where they were uh, I think it was a Great Ormond Street, one of the hospitals, and mm. they were looking at the work of this amazing surgeon and his team who were doing uh, operations on hearts on on unborn children. They were able to go into the mm. womb and, and and do corrective surgery even before the child was born. Absolutely amazing stuff. Wow. But one of the journalists asked that doctor, how do you process the fact that while you're doing this life-saving surgery here and the operating theatre next door, one of your colleagues may be aborting a life at the same age? Mm. Mm. And the surgeon's response was, he said, well, I don't ask myself those questions. I don't do those operations. I don't think about that. My team and I just focus on saving the one in front of us. I'm thinking, wow, you know, you could see, you could see in his eyes that mm. landed. Mm. Um and the same thing applies today, doesn't it? We do. We have these amazing medical procedures we can mm. do even before our child is born. Well, if it's nothing more at that stage than a collection of atoms and, mm. and not a life and not a value. And so the more I think about this, Aaron, that's led me to conclude this all comes back to the life question. You know, yeah. All the other things that get thrown in there. You know, you mentioned the past, past oral angle, and we'll talk about that at the end. We're often sold, you know, what about someone who's pregnant and in desperate circumstances? Mm. Yeah, I get that. And I, and I, and the, and the stuff that needs to be done and the stuff we can do a whole lot better. But, you yeah. know, someone who's got a, a three or four year old who's in desperate circumstances who decides to kill their child, we don't go, oh, well, you know, that parent was in desperate circumstances, you know, therefore slap yeah. on the wrist. Yeah. There are consequences. Yeah. Choice. You know, bodily autonomy. I believe in bodily autonomy. I believe in choice, but my bodily autonomy ends the moment I decide to punch you on the nose. Mm. Because at that point of going, well, you're a human being. You're, you've got a life and a value, and I can't, I can't do that. Mm. Um, and yeah, yes, I have freedom, and yes, I can choose, and yes, I have autonomy. Mm. But actually, that doesn't give me carte blanche where another life is involved to behave in a whole range of ways. So the question I think you cannot get away from, and I think it's interesting, the pro-choice 
folks are nervous about this is mm. what is in the what is in the womb mm. yeah that is and, the question and as christians we have we believe in genesis 1 26 and 27 the imago day we have our answer right there and that's mm. where we begin it's not where we end but it's certainly where we begin yeah no that, that's really really helpful and thank you for sharing about the you know the tragedies of the miscarriage as well there's so many people i'm sure there's many listeners who've been through that we, and we had as, as much as we have a fair few children um we had some Five, as well six seven every yeah, time I see <laughs> keep counting the quiverful um but we did you know, we, we had we had uh, many okay. early miscarriages i think the the um yeah. thing about that is people don't because people don't announce um a pregnancy until after uh three months normally when you have an early miscarriage often women grieve alone um, or a couple might grieve alone they don't tell their church for example until it's it's still it's kind of secure i know that there's lot there's some people who have significant consistent issues before three months um and i think those who go through those difficulties although i've got friends who can't have children you know and and, and wish they could have done and they don't for, for whatever reason it is whether it's infertility of some or, or an early um you know early onset of uh of things of menopause for example and it's it's really really sad here and they they you know that they it's even harder for them to kind of grasp how people who are able to would have the possibility of life and then take it away remove it and so all these issues are kind of linked in and i, and I think what you say as well about the atoms thing you know, we did the episode recently on the meaninglessness of materialism and it's not coincidental that in an increasingly secular world with an increasingly materialist uh worldview we have a rise in uh, in abortion on this kind of industrial scale so you talk about the roman era obviously yes there's significant abuse that's happening and and around the around the clock especially against women in all sorts of ways but we we have an industrial kind of approach to abortion partly because of the technology we have available the way we can do it safely cleanly and easily which it makes it even more morally dubious i think you know, the, the more efficiently you can kill children doesn't make you a more moral society you know you, you look at things like um the holocaust and we look at someone like adolf eichmann and how brilliant he was as a technician but what was he what was his technique his technique was killing jews as quickly and efficiently as far uh, uh, you know, as, as he could without without making much fuss and without kind of causing big issues without causing much emotional distress um and so we've invented ways to make our evil clean uh, clinicalized medicalized we even mm. call it healthcare and I, and i think that's one of the some of those slogans you see on on the pro choice agenda are genuinely heinous that they are abominable slogans because they actually convince people that actually this is a good thing they've convinced so many people so many young women are convinced that this is an issue that if they speak against it they're speaking against their identity as a woman um because they're suddenly siding let's say with patriarchy or misogyny or whatever they want to mm. say and i think yeah. that those kind of evils are really really sneaky really sneaky because they make people make decisions which they will often regret you've mentioned earlier i think the regret um that will often be there and churches do need to make sure they're being pastoral and providing um advice counseling as many good i'm so glad that many evangelical churches have been doing this for years in this country as much as we're pretty weak and wimpy at prophetically decrying how evil abortion is mm. um that many churches do sort of both they do the kind of pre-abortion counseling which which tries to persuade but that equally is not going to kind of come down hammer and tongs on people but at the, at the same time after people have had abortions they try to provide pastoral care so that's a really really important issue and i think people are so maybe they're confused or maybe they're just living in guilt or they're, they're just there's things under the surface because we're not speaking up about it clearly 
And we're not clear about how big an issue this is. We've just let it go under the radar. And and I think that's why we said earlier, So I'm glad this is back in the ether. However long this lasts, it might just be a week that people care about abortion over here again. But thankfully, um, it will be raised. Yeah. The, radar will, will be, the radar will be sort of, mm. you know, enhanced. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the, you know, the, the way that churches have often got involved in, you know, providing, you know, abortion mm. care, uh, well, pregnancy care and counselling. You know, I remember uh, back, I think it was 2015, when I was still living in Canada, I was speaking at a, 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 a city on the East Coast and uh, actually was hosted by a, a family. And the wife of the family ran a, a pregnancy counselling um, service. And really interesting talking to her. And one of the things that she told me that really, you know, a, a statistic that really stuck in my mind was I, one of the things I asked her, I said, well, you know, when young women come through the door, um, just out of interest, you know, how how many are you able to help, you know, make a choice other than the, the one the state would offer of, of abortion? And she said, we we have about 60%, 65% of the women who come to us would go on to keep the child. And she said, you know, I pray every day I'm haunted by the other 35%, but, but 65%. Wow. But she said, but to put it in context, she said, Andy, do you know when people go to the, the, the secular, you know, pregnancy advice mm. services, what percentage choose abortion? Or choose, uh, I said, I have, I have no idea. She said, it's the high 90s. She said, one wow. of the things that makes her so angry is the language of choice. Wow. She said, if choice was genuine, you would look at, you know, the British Pregnancy Advice Service or, um, you know, Planned Parenthood in the States, mm. you'd look at their services and you'd see a range. You'd see, you know, some have abortion, uh, some choose adoption, some keep the child, but she said, you don't. And she said, there's, there's work needs to be done recapturing the language because it's not yeah. choice. Yeah. She said, and we're accused of pressuring people. She said, you mm. look at our, our outcomes, mm. Mm. They, they vary. Some keep the child, some mm. have the child adopted, some mm. choose abortion. Mm. Um, and that really struck me. But Aaron, I want to come back to something else you said a moment ago. There. You talked about, you know, we've talked about feminism and mm-hmm. the issue here. You talked about, about women and the way I think women feel pressurized that they're letting the side down in, in some way mm. if they... If they if they question this, although there are very strong female voices in the abortion debate, I think, uh, and that's uh, you know we've met, um, and I think that's it, that's important to be said. But a couple By of strong, things you just mean here. strident or strident, strident is a is, strong is, rather than is, yeah, not like winsome necessarily. That's the word I, I yes yeah, yeah, I yeah, want. Yeah. But sure. no, I mean people are, so because it's often portrayed as all oh, the people who are against it are men. It's the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is a gross. Even it's also, also not, a, not even a religious issue. I've come across mm. there are humanist pro mm. right pro life groups. There yeah. are pro life groups from every religious background and uh, and none. We we don't we won't dive dive down this um, this rabbit hole necessarily. But I came across the other the other month. I came across a, a vegan pro life mm. group because mm. if you think about it for a moment, if you're a consistent yeah. vegan, you know we have friends who are vegans. They're not Christians. They won't even eat honey. Because they think it's it, it, it's somehow interfering with life, yeah. um, they'll only eat sort of fruit and veg. And I remember sort of thinking, well, that's interesting. If you're consistent, you'd be against abortion because you mm. don't need to decide whether it's a a, a, a person. You just need to decide that things alive. Um, but anyway, back mm. to men for a minute. Mm. One of the things that's often said here, right, is that you know you and I, we can't talk and speak into this mm. this discussion because you're men. You you you, you guys. You guys can't possibly know. Um, now, aside from the fact that clashes beautifully, I use the word beautifully, ir- ironically, by the way, clashes mm-hmm. beautifully with the trans movement. Because oh, if yeah. it is true, yeah, that's right. If it is true that trans <clears throat> men 
are men. So if you could transition and uh, as a woman stand up and announce you are in fact a man and you are male, therefore actually men can get pregnant and therefore men can choose abortion. And this is no longer a feminism issue. <laughs> that occurred yeah. to me the other day of going, actually, this is another area where the, I think the transgender movement is going to go crushing coach and horses through other issues. But take that aside. What do we say in regard to that? Aaron, I've got some thoughts, but I just rabbited on for a bit, so I'll let you rub it on Fine. for a bit. I know you've thought around these issues too. I mean, it, is it true that as as men, our voices are less, that we really shouldn't be saying anything because it doesn't affect us? Um, I think that, men yeah, do yeah. feel sometimes actually a bit mm. on the back foot here and go, oh gosh, yeah. am I being, am, 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 is it appropriate for me to say something? Mm. Yeah, I like how you say, I've got some stuff to say, but I think you've got some more controversial things to say. So I'll let you go first and I'll, I'll you, you, can be the... <laughs> you can be controversial. You can be good cop, bad cop. No, yeah, you can be the one who sort of gets us out of trouble. I'll open the can. Yeah, you, You've opened the can. I'll bring the worms out. You I've can, opened the can. The you can put a few worms out and then yeah, I'm yeah. going to put the whole can back in the cupboard. <laughs> that's true. That's good. So yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I did English literature as my undergrad. So whenever an ethical debate came up um, on a feminist issue, um, I was usually one of the only men in the room. So I have experience here of being like one or two amongst 17 or so in the room in a seminar um, discussing an ethical issue, which where I'm very bluntly told, you know, the, no room, no opinion. Um, and and these are usually um, from the discussions I had with the, with many of my sort of colleagues was um, it, it, it wasn't because they personally had experience of this. So I think it might be slightly different that there are things we've been through it. And then there's like, there are some significance there. These are people who sort of, in theory, in theory, you couldn't possibly speak at all morally on this issue. We can, because in theory, we could be facing this issue at, in, at some point in our life. Or we might have been, uh, have friends who have whatever. I mean, I would too have friends who've had it. So, but either either way, that that was a regular thing. I think I think many men do feel like they can't speak about it. I, I think that's part of why I see this as a problem of why we need to be firmer on feminism. Um, as an issue so there might be women listening to this and go how terrible that must mean you uh, agree with all of the misogyny that feminism is reacting against so clearly no um but i think feminism has had a corrosive impact as well F forms of it not all not all forms of feminism but there's lots of feminism which have a corrosive impact upon women and men in all sorts of ways and it's kind of led to men being kowtowed not feeling they can say what they really need to say for fear of being called toxic or whatever um and it's not good. And I think the men need to find a way of standing up and taking more hits for it. Just get called a bigot because you need to save, you might save the lives of some children. Just think of it like that. Think of it, think of it as the most productive thing you could possibly do in your life is to save the lives of, of children who might be aborted in the womb. Um, it's not a bad thing to think of, you know, mm. maybe, maybe dedicating some money to or dedicating some time to thinking about, about speaking about fine charities like the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children in this country has been going over, over over a century doing some great work. Christian Concern that also do this kind of thing. You could think about how can I actually help fewer babies be murdered? That would be great. Because if you do see it as murder, you do need to think in these very, what sound like blunt and callous terms, oh, it's more complicated mm. than abortion is murder. Well, no, it isn't actually. We, we really need to <laughs> think yeah. about it all the way down. There are, there are complex circumstances around the murder, sure, but it's murder. And so, so we have to try to walk through that jungle, that mire that's placed before us that suggests that we're not allowed to speak on it. And I kind of, one final thing I'd say on that, in fact, I've got two things, but firstly, that the, the, one of the reasons I think many men don't speak up um, when they feel like they don't want to make women feel bad. And I, I agree with that. You don't want to just heap guilt for no reason. And we'll come to that. 
I think there's a chivalry going on that people don't own up to in the culture. There's a kind of vestige of chivalry in the culture. We don't actually want to gang up on women. We don't want to make them feel a certain way. We don't want them to make them feel bad. So we just won't talk about it. So if we're told, don't talk about this because it's not your issue, we sort of go, oh gosh, I better not. And I just think, no, that's that's giving in to a feminist um, agenda, which I don't think is right. And I don't think it's moral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so men need us to, to realize, I know I'm going to get told off for this. I need to speak about it because there are actually women in the womb that need to be advocated for because they don't have a voice. You mentioned earlier, Andy, about mm-hmm. bodily autonomy and choice. Well, I, you know, the, 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 the embryo in a womb doesn't have a voice, doesn't have a choice. Um, they're completely dependent on the mother. Of course, it could be the reverse. It could have been the other way around, but it isn't. This is how it, it works. It does affect women in a visceral, very difficult way. Um, but at the same time, we can't let that be the, be the reason mm. why we don't speak up about it. It's huge. Um, I'll come back to the that's other helpful. point later on. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's, I think that is helpful. I think also... I mean, I think this, I don't know how this plays out in the in the US. We have American listeners. If you're listening from over there, you can email in and uh, or contact us on social media and tell us how it plays out in the culture there. I think there's a thing over here, Aaron, of course, it's a very British sort of way where you sort of feel almost embarrassed about sort of speaking up. I mean, there's been even cases of, you know, people walking by the street, seeing someone mugged on the other side of the street and nobody, despite the fact you're in a big group, wants to say anything mm-hmm. um, because we don't like standing out. And I actually think on this, you're right. I think to go, again, it comes back to if you think this is a really grave moral issue and if you think what it's going on is 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 murder, is taking a life, then you have to. You just absolutely have to, I think, is the is the yeah. first thing. I think the other the other thing I would I would say here is actually it is a it is a male issue. And um an argument I've been thinking about for a while. And be careful I construct this, because if you've just dropped into the podcast partway through, do not listen to what I'm about to say and go, what is Bannister pro, pro-abortion? No, but I'm saying there is a there is an inequality and imbalance in the way the argument is permitted. So the way it runs right now in the secular world is a, a, a guy and a girl have perhaps been dating for a little while and they uh, and something happens with the contraception and it goes wrong. They find themselves pregnant and, uh, and they start discussing what to do. And the, and the, and the boyfriend says, well, actually, no, I'm, no, I, I'd love to be a dad. I'm, I, I think we should keep the baby. And the girl's like, well, no, no, don't want it. It's not the right time. I've got my career. They ask, no, I'm going to abort it. Of course, in today's culture, what happens? Her voice wins. And of course, the feminist, uh, you know, uh, group uh, lobby and uh, the pro-abortion lobby would be absolutely bodily autonomy, her right to choose, and off she goes. Her choice wins. Okay, rever- take that, replay the conversation, but reverse the choices. This time they find themselves pregnant. Um, it's the uh, it's the woman who says, "Well, actually, I'd like to keep it. I, I think we're ready for parenthood. Been dating a couple of weeks. You know, I think we can build a family here. I want to have a child." And the boys, the lads, are like, "Well, actually, no. I'm I was I've actually had enough of this relationship. I want to walk away. Got other things to do. Um, so I think you should abort mm-hmm. it." Well, again, what happens? Well, her choice wins, right? Again, bodily autonomy would be would be thrown around. But mm-hmm. hang on, just a cotton picking moment. That to go at this point, she he is now on the hook for eighteen years of maintenance, child support maintenance payments. Uh, he's committed to being a dad if he's not going to be a complete loser, and in being you know involved with that life you know until the day he dies because children tend to outlive their parents. So mm-hmm. the choice that she's made has for him had life changing consequences forever. There's a case to be made if we're thinking this is why I'm careful. I purely within the secular argument. I don't agree with abortion at all. Mm-hmm. But if you were going to complete the, the, the square the circle, 
on the, on the secular argument, you would have to surely also make the case for economic abortion, whereby the man can go, okay, I will sign a piece of paper to say I am walking away. Uh, mm -hmm. I have nothing to do with this. I'm severing all connection. I am not paying a cent or a penny. Um, but that doesn't happen. So in other words, right now, the women get to have the choice, the bodily autonomy, and the guy gets to be economically on the hook for the rest of his life. And of course, one argument is the way to solve all of that is if we don't have abortion in the first place, we don't wade mm. into this. And mm. actually the same, at the top of the show, I told the story of that, that history lecturer at college. He was also our, our ethics uh, lecturer as well. And I remember a comment he once made in an ethics lecture, which has also made me for you know, 25 years on almost, where he was saying, you know, one of the problems, one of the reasons we get into these torturous discussions today is we frame everything in terms of individual rights. Mm. So this discussion I just mapped out there, you've got the rights of the woman, you've got the rights of the man, somewhere in there, you know, as a footnote, is the rights of, of, the, of, the, of, of the unborn child to some mm. degree. Um, and how mm. do we play those off? Mm. Mike would say, what about if we if we throw rights out the window for a moment as, a, as, a, as, a, as an ethical lens and we mm. talk about responsibility? Who has mm. the greater responsibility in this? Does the woman, does the char unborn child have the greater responsibility to its mum or does the mother have the greater responsibility mm. to the unborn child? And obviously at that point, there's no discussion anymore. And we recognise that elsewhere. We're in a culture that is so quick to talk about power in this mm. postmodern world and recognise that those who have greater power have some more responsibility to those who are less. And I would agree with mm. that basic understanding. Mm -hmm. I think it's been misused Mm -hmm. But I think those of us who have power mm. have a responsibility to those without. Mm. Why is that lens not applied to the abortion discussion? We yeah. said, look, the greater responsibility lies mm. with the mother. And yes, mm. it's not easy. And, you know, we're not neglecting. There are complex situations around it and support <clears throat> is far more support is needed mm. than is there for people who mm. find themselves in mm. difficult situations. And it, but that, that doesn't excuse mm. all the abuses that then follow. Okay, I completely agree. I think, and I think it's interesting when you talk about power because obviously, I think you probably would be have women listening to this going, "Well, hang on, yes, we have power over the womb because we've got the the law on our side in terms of the choice, but structurally, maybe men have well, no, certainly men have had lots of power in order to shape law, and I expect in in the at most cases, well, you do get so many cases where the men are actually pressurizing women to have an abortion, and I would, I would. I don't have the statistics to hand, but I would sort of, if you could, and you probably couldn't get the statistics because there's so many, so much qualitative uh, data that's needed, not just sort of quantitative in terms of numbers, but the actual specifics of the situation. Um, that I don't know if we will actually know where the moral uh, compass lies in terms of who's more in charge of the situation. But I, I suspect there are more men who want their girlfriends to have abortions and maybe pressure them into it um, as much as there are women. So sometimes we, yeah, we do place the blame of the decision on women um, a lot because the law is on their side. But actually, socially speaking, in the, in the circumstances they're in, <clears throat> the men might be just as or likely more um, pushing for this. And, and that's a problem. As, as, as much as I want to also say, to take your point, there'll be loads of situations too where there'll be the guy who doesn't want to go through this, but he's completely hamstrung and, and can't really speak on it either way. Um, and this is where I think we'll, we'll mention there about law. Um, there's there's something that as Christians, as evangelical Christians, we just don't think enough about because we don't like thinking about the law because we're just like, well, you know, the age of Christendom has passed and we're so glad that we can just talk about the gospel and we don't need to worry about what's going on in politics. And I get that sensitivity because we don't want to be people who just harp on about a certain issue. That's, part, that's partly also why preachers don't talk about abortion. But it's also why I, 
agree. What motivates me to speak about these issues more is because, well, Christians do, evangelical Christians have been speaking about socio-political issues. Race sometime, somehow found its way into sermons uh, that never would have found its way in previously we, we, since George Floyd. So we are far more responsive to socio-political issues than we actually realise, and we need to be consistent in it and go, wow, if we're going to talk about any socio-political issue, let's talk about abortion. If we're going to lobby for anything in law that we think might be make, make for better society, um, that'll be better uh, expression of, let's say, salt and light, even if even if we're not converting the politicians, we're trying to make fewer babies die, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? And yes, abortion's got to be the thing we argue for. And I think Northern Ireland would be an interesting case for that because it's incredible, you know, that only recently they um, they made abortion legal. It was completely illegal um, until very very recently, and and uh, that's just astonishing. And and the, the the rate of abortions was significantly lower. Of course, they could go across the uh, the Irish Sea to get an abortion in England, but that barrier prevented it. That's what that's what law can do. Good law can actually restrain sin. It can restrain. The, the possibility, the option of a choice, even if you say, well, you could just go and get it done if you really want to get it done. But it just so happens that because it's harder to do it, there's a bit of a barrier, um, then they don't as much. And then one of the big arguments for the pro-choice is to say, if we if we made abortion illegal, uh, we'd go back to Victorian backstreet abortions with doctors who don't know what they're doing. But the amount of times I've heard that argument, I just think, are you crazy? Do you really think there's going to be 220,000 women in Britain every year the going into backstreets and finding these doctors who don't know what they're doing and possibly dying as a result. That's the kind of emotive language that's used to speak of it. It's so, <clears throat> I think it's so sneaky because I think it makes it just, again, covers more, um, mm. throw, just throws yeah. more sort of, you know, vagueness over a situation that's really quite clear morally and, and it's probably more complicated in terms of how we work it out. I think the, the pressure thing is interesting, incidentally, where you mentioned, I mean, I think that's a question that's never really spoken about. Um, we mentioned before, on the show, uh, you know, Mary Epstein's book, Primal Screams. Oh, yeah. And talking about the way that, you know, the, the contraceptive pill and easy access to abortion uh, has had a whole series of unintended consequences on the, mm. on the family. And I was equally reminded as well, um, there's, a, there's a wonderful uh, writer I came across a few years ago called Wendy Shallot. Have you come across Wendy? No, I haven't. Kind of a liberal, liberal Jewish writer in the States, uh, read an amazing book, uh, late 1990s, in the second or third edition now, called A Return to Modesty. And one of her theses in there she's not talking about abortion per se but about the fact that that the easier that access to sex became and the lesser mm. the consequences the mm. knock-on effect for women she mm. talks about how as a young student mm. she wanted she wanted a serious relationship she wanted a boyfriend who would commit but you know in a culture yeah. where you know men had easy access to sex she said you know young women like myself will just find the moment we try and insist to a guy that we want to be you know some form of commitment before willing to jump between yeah. the sheep he could just go, well, actually, well, I could just, there's a hundred other women over here who, yeah. who, who don't have that condition. And mm. it becomes almost impossible. And she talks about what ha- has happened in her view to, to women as those societal supports for mm. stable relationships mm. are taken away one by one. Mm. And again, that's the other thing I think in terms of autonomy is the consequences. Um, you know, the old, the, the other one of the other sort of slogans that's thrown around by the abortion lobby is, you know, if you don't want an abortion, don't have one. But that's rather like saying, well, if you don't want a slave, don't keep one. Yeah, there are yeah, actually consequences. I think, yeah. and the pressure thing where I come to where where I was coming to on this, I'm struck by the fact. I want to tell the story carefully so I don't, you know, out the people involved. Mm-hmm. But I've got a I've got a relative uh, who he and his wife they had two children, found themselves pregnant for the third time, 
and became convinced they couldn't afford a third child. They hadn't got a space for a third child. It wasn't going to work. And literally got so far, took some advice, as one does, got so mm-hmm. far as finding themselves in the uh, waiting room for the clinic where the abortion would be performed. Mm-hmm. And minutes before, one of them looks at the other one and goes, what the, insert expletive, they're not Christians, are we doing here? This is insane. Wow. You know, we can make this work. And the other one went, well, I'm so glad you said it. I thought you wow. wanted it. Well, I thought yeah. you wanted they. Yeah. It was literally to the wire. And we mm. now have a, you know, a third, well, I won't say whether it's a nephew, niece, cousin, or whatever it is, because it might be too close to home. But mm. it just struck me, the pressure. And as they, as I talked to them about that, it was that sort of sense of societal pressure. The GP had encouraged mm. them. The pregnancy advice clinic had encouraged them. Other friends had gone, oh, yeah, it's obvious. Three kids would be a right nightmare. Mm. And now mm. they've got a beautiful family. Mm. And... Um, and the, and, the, and the subliminal, the greasing of the skids there, yeah. Um, which connects me to, I think I think it'd be great to talk about, Aaron, in our last kind of five minutes, because we've got a hard stop coming yeah. up on the time. We've touched on all of these things, some of the pastoral issues around this. Obviously, they can sometimes be used as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Well, you can't talk firmly about this because yeah. it's pastoral, so I think we've handled that. But there are also, there are some messy things. There may be people mm. listening to the show who've done something daft in the past you know abortion regret is never talked about Mm. right the number of Mm. women who go through abortion and then later sooner or later come to regret it deeply and have no idea how you could repair what you've Mm. done how do we as christians speak into that one without compromising anything that we've said um and going for the words you know we need to be careful um what do we do with the fact that we live in a broken world where people make stupid bad choices Mm. and then the consequences are all around them what do we what do we say yeah, that's really, really important um, that we talk about this. Uh, I think the first thing I want to say about pastoral approach is what I've probably said once or twice before, that pastoral doesn't just mean yeah, not speaking the truth um, or yeah. going easy or not caring about doctrine or not caring about, yeah, and just sort of pandering to whatever someone's feelings or emotions are. It does clearly involve taking uh being being sort of aware of the whole human person and and being aware of feelings and emotions and not just blasting in with the truth but speaking the truth in love as the biblical you can't get you can't get better than that <laughs> the, the biblical ideal of speaking the truth in love and those things are connected love and truth don't aren't opposites that you have to sort of put together um and they it actually that, that to be truthful is to, it, it should be to be loving and to be loving is to be truthful um so the first thing I'd want to say in terms of pastoral angle is actually to help people see pastorally the issue of abortion. I know that might seem a different thing. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going, you're talking about, talking about post-abortion. I guess I'm thinking about pre-abortion first to say pastorally, I'd want to speak about how can we get people to identify with the morality of this issue? So I think I mentioned earlier Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. That's known as the book. Abraham Lincoln said that's he joked that that was the book that basically caused the American Civil War because it was a book that gave people an insight into um, a human story relating to slavery um, and the real difficulties, the real challenges and, and the real heinousness of it. People had the arguments, the rational propositions, and it just wasn't doing it. They could have, for every 10 propositions on this side of the debate, on on the abolition side, you'd have another 15 propositions for those who say, well, economically, you know, whatever. Socially, it's really important we keep this structural system and hierarchy for these reasons. So that wasn't winning it. And it was this novel about a story of a family 
um, and, and what happens when children are separated from parents in slavery and this kind of thing that really won the hearts of many people and it pushed it. And so I think the challenge with abortion, we don't have that same ability to identify with the story of a baby in a womb because we can't see, we have, they don't have a voice. We can't speak to them. We can't write a novel about what it'd be like to be a, a, an embryo that then gets aborted. And then, and then we kind of, because we can't have an experience of it. So it's sort of being a, a sentient, you know, thinking, feeling um, human. And so that's why we need to speak about, like you said, in that example of your family member, you can see a person and I can see your eyes even welling up a bit there as you're speaking about it. That you, you'll every time you look at that person, you go, "Wow, you could have not existed. You could have not been here if we'd gone with this." And I think it's trying to identify with the stories of people who haven't gone through with it, who exist because someone made a different choice, and um, which is really important. But then, where, as you do that, of course, you're going to then run the risk of piling guilt on people who are already completely burdened by guilt. And I think that's possibly another reason why we don't speak about it enough because we're worried about the judgmental approach that maybe some. Factions, you know, members of the church or, or, or wings of the church have been guilty of in previous generations. I think less so today, to be honest. I don't think it's a huge issue of people going around being overly judgmental in general in this country. Um, people might say our podcast is an example of that, but that might be an aberration from the norm. But um, I do think that it, it's a you know an issue if you do just blast guilt upon people who so are already feeling condemned, and that they, they, they do need the pastoral care to be like, look. The gospel is big enough for you, okay? It's not something that you've done something that's so terrible. It's not so when we're preaching against how awful and heinous abortion is, you might be then thinking, well, how heinous and evil am I? And in a sense, yes, we're all we're all under the same kind of banner of how evil sin is, and we we're so desperately in need of God's grace. But we need to preach grace to those who are feeling that condemnation. Wow, me too. I can be saved too. Amazing. Um, I can be delivered and, and forgiven of this sin, even though I'm a Christian, maybe, and I've been carrying it for years. Yes, you can. That's the gospel we must preach. But to those who are unrepentant, to those who think, oh, this is so complicated, this issue, we mustn't, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's my rights, I'm a woman, even I'm a Christian. No, I think we need to preach strongly. We need to preach for conviction. Um, so I think I had in a debate with someone recently, a pastor on, on Twitter, who was saying he, he had a big pastoral ministry change. Um, several years ago, when a woman came up to him after he preached a kind of hardline uh, sermon against on murder or thou shalt not kill and, and majoring on abortion. And she said, you preach that sermon as though no one in the room, there were no women in the room who may have actually had an abortion. And so he said, that changed my ministry. And I thought very differently about it. And I was like, and so part of me goes, amen to that. Absolutely. You don't want to preach abstract truths as though you're not dealing with real people who've actually mm -hmm. going through this thing. At the same time, I want to say, would you would you take that line on sin with other issues which are less socially acceptable than abortion? So would you take homophobia, gender violence against women, or um, yeah, or, or, or something you know of that ilk? Um, homophobia, racism, gender violence against women, um, and then say I'm I'm preaching a hard line against how terrible racism is. I don't want to offend any racists in the room in case they actually uh, feel guilty and they felt guilty for their racism for years or they felt guilty for their domestic abuse for years and suddenly um, they, you're, you're piling on guilt. No, you want to preach for conviction. I expect that most people who call themselves progressive would want to preach like a hardline, you know, Northern Irish street preacher um, from back in the day, Presbyterian Paisley style. They'd want to preach 
like that against how terrible these issues are. That's what I see on the left when I look at the arguments on the left. I see them regaling against these sins. But what they don't do is they don't regale against them as though there's a gospel that can help you. So if you're if you're if you're guilty of systemic racism, you just can't be forgiven. You're just constantly needing to pay restitution for the rest of your life, seemingly. Um, or homophobia or something. It's just it's so terrible if you ever were guilty of overt homophobia. They don't tend to preach a gospel which is very offers a balm or a salve to that. But when it comes to abortion, we somehow think we need to go pastoral and the pastoral angle. So I just want would want to see some consistency on that, that we preach conviction yeah. um, to those who are unrepentant, but we preach grace and good news to those who are under condemnation. And that's a great place to come in for a landing. You know, exactly. Preach, preach the conviction, address sin honestly, but then always offer the way out to a hope in Christ. And of course, the, the, the verse that sprang to mind, the scripture that sprang to mind, Aaron, as you were summing that up so 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 helpfully there was of course first corinthians six you know where paul lays out that litany of of, of sins and some pretty heinous stuff there mm. uh you know and talks about those who are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god and then there's that amazing verse 11 and such were some of you some of you mm. some of you in the corinthian mm. church this was who you guys were that's the background you have it mm. doesn't leave it there and go you bunch of halfwits mm. he goes but you were washed you were sanctified mm. you were justified in the name of Christ Jesus, mm. uh, the Lord, and by the Spirit of our God, and that's to me is the great. We're going to talk in a future episode about forgiveness. I think I think the gospel, when it's applied properly, does those two things, doesn't it? It convicts mm. of sin, and it offers then grace for the repentant. And when you disconnect those things, when you offer mm. judgment mm. without hope, then you're then you're being a Pharisee. Let's just name yeah. it. I mean, Jesus goes for that ideology, but if you mm. offer the sort of you know the love and the and the hope without the addressing what's gone wrong, then that's that's mm. not a gospel and in a sense, you're to me, you're spitting in the face of Christ because you're mm. saying, well, you know, Jesus didn't need to die on the cross. There's actually nothing mm. wrong. Mm. Um, put the two things together and you can, you know, address issues, talk about mm. them honestly, but do so with with hope. And I think that's such for mm. some of you is so crucial in all these issues, realizing we're all in that same boat. Uh, we've all had stuff in our past that is horrendous. Um, and all of it can be dealt with if we bring it uh, as, as, you know, repenting to the to the foot of the cross. Mm. What a great place to, to end. Mm. Mm. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Hope you found it uh, helpful uh, listening at home. Uh, we have been part of the gaps. I've been Andy Bannister. I think Aaron Edwards has been Aaron Edwards. He certainly seems to have remained consistent throughout the show. And we'll be back uh, in 10 days' time or something like that, a couple of weeks' time, uh, for another exciting episode. Hope you can join us then. Bye for now. Bye-bye.